This week's episode of the Art Tactic Podcast is brought to you by the Sotheby's Institute of Art, which I'm proud to say is my own alma mater. I received a master's in art business on their London campus. Sotheby's Institute has been providing a premier education in arts and its market since 1969. You can join over 6,000 alumni, like me, whose art world careers are connected through a Sotheby's Institute master's degree, or hone your expertise by signing up for an online course, a two- or four-week summer program for an educational experience that covers everything from art finance and entrepreneurship to art history. You can visit the website Sotheby'sInstitute.com to learn more. This week's episode of the Art Tactic Podcast is also brought to you by ArtCloud. Trusted by thousands of galleries, artists, and collectors worldwide, ArtCloud's all-in-one art management solution and integrated art marketplace is the fastest growing of its kind. You can use ArtCloud's marketplace to discover and buy exceptional pieces tailored for your taste, share your favorites with friends and fellow art enthusiasts, and even use the app to visualize artwork in your own space. If you're an artist or gallery, plug into ArtCloud's best-in-class art management platform, including easy-to-use client and inventory management, sales assistance, and the opportunity to grow your business by listing your art on ArtCloud's booming marketplace. Are you ready to explore ArtCloud? Registration is free, so sign up now on ArtCloud.com. That's spelled A-R-T-C-L-D.com. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Art Tactic Podcast. I'm Adam Green. We're joined by Nate Freeman, senior staff writer at Art News, who's back from London to recap this past week's Freeze Art Fair, as well as the major October contemporary auctions. Nate, it's great having you back on. Are you recovering yet from Freeze Week? I've recovered, Adam, uh, and uh, glad to be on. It's always a pleasure. Early on during Freeze, a lot of the major galleries expressed to you that it was their best Freeze yet. Of course, as you rightly pointed out in some of your writings, they often say that. By the end of things, we were able to deduce how successful the fair really was this year and consequently how strong the sales were for the galleries. Well, you know, Adam, it's, it's easy for a gallery to say this is our best Freeze yet because, you know, it's all kind of subjective. Uh, I can't really fact check that in real time. But the thing was, it, it did seem a lot more lively than last year. As soon as I came in, there were, you know, lines just all through uh, the, the tent. And there was a lot of action really early on. The bottom line is, uh, there were some really big works that went in the first, you know, few minutes of the fair. And that wasn't really uh, the story last year. I mean, you know, when you sell... Uh, Jeff Koons' gazing ball for 2.75 million just in the first hour of the fair, like David Zwerner did. That's that's a pretty good uh, good sale. I don't think that there was anything even in that ballpark uh, at the beginning of last year's Freeze London. So that's something that you know caught me uh, just right off the bat. Um, so it seemed like the fair as a whole was uh, more successful last year. But you have to remember a year ago. Um, London was sort of mired in Brexit, really, and that was really what everyone was talking about. And that happened over the summer, right around when galleries are figuring out what they're going to bring to Freeze London. Um, and so that might have caused some uh, galleries to hold back a little bit and not bring, you know, the five or ten million dollar works, and maybe you know, bring more works at the you know five hundred thousand to one million dollar range. Whereas this year, it seems like Brexit isn't as much of an issue, or at least it's been tabled. And, uh, you know, the feeling in London 
from what I gathered, was a really positive one. You know, people are opening up new spaces there. Uh, Thaddeus Ropak just opened his gallery there. Stuart Shave opened another gallery. Um, and people are pretty bullish uh, this year. So I think with that in mind over the summer, people plan on bringing um, higher-priced things. And, and a lot of times they were successful in selling them. So um, maybe it wasn't everyone's best freeze ever or best freeze yet. But on a whole... It seems uh, like like people were doing a little bit better than they were a year ago. And you reported that certain galleries expressed that some of their blue chip artists expressed to them a strong desire to have their work on display at Freeze and made work specifically for the fair. Tell us a little bit more about this phenomenon and what does it say about the reputation of Freeze as an art fair? Well, uh, you know, beyond just Freeze, I think that artists have a lot of power when it comes to where their work is being placed and, uh, you know, which fairs they ready new work for or, or allow work to be shown at, um, more so than just even a few years ago when the galleries can sort of strong-arm, you know, certain artists into doing things a certain way, having work at certain fairs, or, or just, you know, selling them in certain in galleries. Um, but now the artists themselves have a lot of say. So, um, yeah, I mean, to go back to the Zwerner booth, just because I was talking to a director there about this specifically, you know, when Jeff Koons offers up a few works for the David Zwerner booth, that's something they're going to be interested in. Um, you know, Jeff famously showed at both Kogosian and Zwerner at the same time in New York a few years ago, and that was his call. He wanted to have shows at, at, at both galleries. And when you see a fair like Freeze, Kogosian had a booth in Freeze London that was all work on paper. And its booth in Freeze Masters was uh, Basel and Liechtenstein. So there wasn't really much leeway in order for Gugosian Gallery to show, you know, other artists or, 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 you know, a work like a gazing ball because they had these two theme booths. So that opened up an opportunity for David Zwerner to show uh, something like, like two Jeff Koons gazing ball works in their booth. So it's sort of logistics, you know, um, and, you know, and, and the artist gets to take advantage of those logistical uh, maneuvers at Freeze in order to show work at a certain booth. Um, but I think that, that a lot of artists really wanted to be a part of Freeze London right now because um, there's just so much going on in the city. You see these enormous museum shows opening up, John's at the RA, uh, the Basquiat show at the Barbican, um, you know, even someone like like Seth Price showing at ICA. These are big shows for American artists, and I think that artists that even aren't necessarily associated with those artists want to just be a part of everything that's going on in London. There's so much happening during Freeze. You know, you have the auctions, you have all these gallery uh, openings, you have all these museum openings. It's hard to find another major fair that goes on with so much else happening within that city. Um, it's just a confluence of so many different things. And I think that artists responded to that by really pushing to have their work included in their galleries booths at the fair. And for those who couldn't attend the fair this year, what were some of the most talked about artworks at the fair, whether it was because of a high price tag or the aesthetics or maybe something controversial? Well, I mean, you know, there are two fairs, two enormous fairs. And so there are thousands upon thousands of works. It's hard for me to just point out the ones that everyone was talking about. Um, I, I think that, you know, more than just works with enormous price tags, because there wasn't really one work that had, you know, 
a $50 million price tag like you might see at uh, Art Basel in Basel. Um, it was just, you know, a lot of galleries took the opportunity to do something really special or, 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 or bring work that can really stand out aesthetically. Um, what, what I found was there was a lot of really interesting uh, work that occupied a very specific historical space. Um, what I mean by that was, you know, Zwerner and Fries Masters had the first Dan Flavin neon um, that, you know, it's an edition of three, um, one of which is in Dia, the other is in a private collection. Uh, and that's something that, you know, a collector of minimalism can really respond to because this is, you know, it's a part of art history. It's not just a beautiful work. Um, and so that was something that people were talking about. Um, another sort of historical booth, or, or, or you, you know, this is one that was a little bit more localized, I guess, but the work of John Dogg at Venus over Manhattan, I, I wrote about a little bit. John Dogg is a uh, a persona or a pseudonym of the artist Richard Prince, and he showed uh, these John Dogg works at these small galleries uh, in the East Village during East Village of Manhattan during that neighborhood's uh, boom time as a gallery neighborhood. Um, I was particularly interested because uh, American Fine Arts, which is Colin DeLand's gallery that showed those works, happened to be right next to my apartment in New York. But apart from my own personal interest, I think a lot of people were really fascinated to see this completely different body of work from Richard Prince. These were tires under glass. And uh, even though aesthetically they were very different, it was also playing with the kind of appropriation and idea of authenticity that he's been doing through his whole career. And another uh, instance of that in the fair was at the Gagosian Work on Paper booth in Fries, London. There was this fascinating little work that I later found out was shown uh, at that gallery's Beverly Hills branch in uh, March of 2005 for its uh, so-called Oscars show that always uh, happens right before the Academy Awards. And that was Richard Prince's Czech paintings. And the one that I really liked was um, it's this work where essentially it's just a very rare copy of the album sleeve for the Rolling Stones album Sticky Fingers that was designed by Andy Warhol. And it's signed by both Warhol and Mick Jagger. And then there's a check that Richard Prince had written to the Andy Warhol Foundation to buy that record. So it was playing with the same sort of, you know, uh, ideas of appropriation, ownership that Prince has always played with. To see it uh, deemed a work on paper among, you know, all these wonderful drawings was, I think, pretty humorous. Uh, and then there were these sort of big theme booths. Waddington had uh, recreated Peter Blake's studio where you can go and take, you know, his records and put them on the turntable. That was fun. And then Hauser and Worth had its, uh, you know, so-called museum where it had a bunch of bronze objects and uh, displayed as if it were in, you know, a sort of local museum or something. And they even had a gift shop, which was, was pretty amusing. People really liked that. So I, I guess, yeah, there, there were these really just fascinating objects, you know, embedded within certain booths. And then there were also these theme booths that have become uh, pretty common at fairs like Freeze London, where you can have that leeway to do something a little more creative and high concept. And simultaneously with all this going on, there were major contemporary auctions as well at Christie's, Sotheby's, and Phillips, the main players. 
Christie's earned 99.5 million pounds, Sotheby's made 50.3 million, and Phillips netted 23.9. But what were some of the major storylines coming out of these auctions? Well, I, I think the first big storyline was that you know Christie's had made the decision to no longer hold its sale uh, after Art Basel and Basel in July, and really focus on this sale um, during freeze in October as its big uh, London push. And so you saw a really heavy-duty sale at Christie's and then the sort of standard freeze-October sale at Sotheby's. Um, And it was interesting, you know, going into it to see how that would work out for both houses. And it seems like things went pretty much as expected. Sotheby's had its, uh, you know, its biggest sale in London yet. And Christie's had a much bigger one because it just had you know more lots and bigger lots, but uh, the most high-profile lot of all three auctions, uh, which was the Francis Bacon at Christie's, uh, it it didn't sell, and that I think was perhaps the biggest shock of of the three auctions because uh, Study of Red Pope 1962, second version 1971, um, you know the the estimate was 60 to 80 million pounds, which is $78.4 million to 104 million. That would have been a really, really major sale for not just Christie's, but for auctions in London in general. It would have been the most expensive uh, work of art ever sold in Europe. But it didn't sell. And uh, that, I think, was due to just a sort of price miscalculation on the part of Christie's. Um, I'm sure they'll sell it to some lucky collector privately, um, but to see that just just not work out was 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 one of the um, prevailing themes and what people were talking about. Really, it was kind of a shock. Um, apart from that, you know, there was uh, I, I think a little bit less bidding from Asian collectors than would like. Apart from Sako Maizawa buying the Anthony Gormley at Christie's, uh, which he announced by promptly posting a picture of it to his Instagram account, as is his want. Um, and then also, I noticed a little bit more online bidding than, than is usual, perhaps because collectors couldn't you know, get on the phone for some reason. They couldn't make it to London. And uh, that's always just somewhat amusing because the auctioneer always sort of makes a joke about it as if we're still living in the 90s or something. Oh, wow, online bidding, the future. <laughs> um, and, and so, yeah, that, that's always kind of, fun to experience. Um, but I think, yeah, apart from the, the Francis Bacon not finding a buyer, things went pretty much according to plan for, for the houses. And so we had a handful of major auctions and one of the most prominent art fairs occurring in the same week. At the end of the day, what was the general takeaway about where the art market stands at the moment? Well, there's some pretty major tests ahead for the market. The auctions in New York in November really are the bellwether of where the market is. And then immediately after that, you have Art Basel in Miami, which uh, sets the tone for, you know, American buyers and, uh, and, and where the market is stateside. And so while things look pretty sunny uh, after, you know, fairly successful auctions and what seems to be a more robust freeze, it's hard to say exactly where the market is just with so much to come. I mean, just today, uh, Christie's announced two major lots that are going to be for sale at its contemporary auction on November 15th, the um, 
Leonardo da Vinci that's uh, estimated at $100 million, and in Andy Warhol's 60 Last Suppers, which is estimated at $50 million. And, you know, the success of the market now kind of hinges on, on not hinges on those two works, but really depends on them selling at those prices. I guess they are uh, guaranteed by third parties. They will sell, but we'll have to wait until we get there to see really where the market is. Another thing is that even if everything looked you know, pretty solid in London, I think that that city is just very, very strong right now. And we're going to have a major test when we get to Miami. Given Hurricane Irma and, and just you know, other issues that have afflicted that city, it's unclear whether everyone will really show up. And if there is a sort of a lackluster showing in Miami, that could really affect things, especially among, uh, you know, just how the market is perceived stateside. Um, And so from what I've heard from people, for the most part, everything is uh, pretty solid. There's still a lot of issues with... uh, the gallery scene in New York, there are a lot of smaller or medium galleries closing, and that's very disconcerting. Um, and just you know, the market on that level, there are cracks there. Um, I think really we're going to have to wait until the auctions in November to see exactly where the market is. Nate, thanks so much for coming onto the podcast and sharing your analysis and reporting on Freeze Art Fair, as well as the October Contemporary Auctions. And of course, our listeners can read all of your articles in Art News. And you also tweet about the art market often. Our listeners should definitely follow you on Twitter. What's your Twitter name? It is nfreeman1234. Follow along. Great. A worthy follow. Nate, thanks so much again. (laughs) I really appreciate it. Adam, it's always a pleasure. Talk to you soon. This week's episode of the Art Tactic Podcast was brought to you by the Sotheby's Institute of Art, which I'm proud to say is my own alma mater. I studied art business on their London campus. Sotheby's Institute has been providing a premier education in art and its markets all the way since 1969. You can join over 6,000 alumni like myself whose art world careers are connected through a Sotheby's Institute master's degree. Or you can hone your expertise by signing up for an online course, a two- or four-week summer program for an educational experience that covers everything from art finance and entrepreneurship all the way to art history. Visit the website sotheby'sinstitute.com to learn more today. This week's episode of the Art Tactic Podcast was also brought to you by ArtCloud. ArtCloud's trusted by thousands of galleries, artists, and collectors worldwide. ArtCloud's all-in-one art management solution and integrated art marketplace is the fastest growing of its kind. Use ArtCloud's marketplace to discover and buy exceptional pieces tailored for your taste Share your favorites with friends and fellow art enthusiasts, and use the app to visualize artwork in your own space. That's pretty cool. If you're an artist or gallery, plug into ArtCloud's best-in-class art management platform, including easy-to-use client inventory management, sales assistance, and the opportunity to grow your business by listing your art on ArtCloud's booming marketplace. So, are you ready to explore ArtCloud? Registration is free, so sign up now on artcloud.com. That's spelled A-R-T-C-L-D.com.